0: This episode is sponsored in part by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that puts pen and paper in front of you and asks you to draw your own future. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Tapato Corporation, known as Tapatico for short, has spent nearly a decade fulfilling dreams, and and I mean that pretty literally. Started by Jeffrey Rowland to ship out merchandise related to his own webcomics, he expanded back in 2007 to take on making and delivering books, t-shirts, mugs, and other sorts of goods for other artists. Holly Rowland, who I'm talking to today, has been working with Jeffrey for seven years from about the time he started working with other people to ship their stuff out. And she's in charge of a new effort called Make That Thing that's currently in beta testing that helps people plan and fulfill their crowdfunding projects. I'm delighted to have you on the show, Holly. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this show, as as, uh, as listeners well know and you know, this show is about how people find connections with audiences. And then you know the, the money component comes up again and again because it's great to have – a connection with an audience, and then the question is: If you want to make a living, how do you get stuff to people who want your stuff? It seems like Topotico fits in that beautiful space where you're you're saying, "Hey, we have a way of getting things to you know to an audience of someone of a web comic, somebody who has an existing fan base."
1: Yeah, I mean it, that's exactly what it grew out of. It's it's been around for so long. Jeffrey has been doing this for so long because Gene you know, Jeffrey is also a cartoonist himself, and so it started with. You know, a handful of guys really, when he started web comics, wasn't even a, an a, industry. I don't know if you want to use that word. <laughs> I guess you could call it an industry now. It seems really weird, but um, it wasn't even that. It was just a, a bunch of people who were doing this thing. And then it happened so organically that it was people who were doing web comics and then people who are their readers who were asking, for merchandise based on the comic. And then it started growing to the point where, you know, each individual person who, each individual cartoonist who was producing these things were just kind of like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I live in Canada. It's really expensive for me to do this. You know, all these different reasons. And so people like Jeffrey started picking up their work for their friends from their friends, rather, where they were just kind of like, well, if you don't want to do it, I'm already shipping my own stuff, so I might as well do it, and, you know, I'll just charge you a little bit, and fine, great, take it. I don't want to do this anymore. And then it just it just snowballed from there.
0: It's, a, it's an amazing thing because I think, and uh, I'll, I'll let you either be modest or not modest about this, but I think Topotico is one of the reasons that webcomics took off. In terms of um, the amount of time that webcomic artists – could participate because, you know, certainly before it was relatively easy to send out merchandise. I mean, Cafe Press goes back a long time, although they have kind of a, it's their model and the pricing, I think, make it difficult to make uh, sufficient money off it, even with a lot of volume for a lot of people. Yeah. But, you know, there were always places that would sell, you could get a custom mug, you could get a custom t-shirt, but it was sort of for everyone. You're a website of any kind and I want a t-shirt made. I feel like web comics were coming up in the early two thousands. There's sort of this broadband revolution. People would download more. There was a bigger and bigger audience because people were suddenly on broadband, so they're on all the time. And you see this explosion of things all at once. And you know, we talked to Zach uh, wiener Smith not that long ago about kind of that time frame. I keep talking to folks who, uh, you know, Rich Stevens who does Diesel Sweeties. He also, I think, in the early two thousands, like they all sort of take off because the audience was there, but. You have an audience, and that's great, but you still have your day job. I feel like Topotico fit into that position where webcomic artists who said, how am I going to make a living off this? You were there to sort of pick them up and say, we can't guarantee you a living, but we can at least do the heavy lifting part.
1: Yeah, I, that was that was the whole point, too. Because, you know, Jeffrey was able to not have a day job because of the things that he was selling, because of the comic that he was making. And so it was just a matter of it really did just happen with – a grou- it was a group of friends, basically. Like, uh, you know, it started with, with friends of his and then sort of branched out from there. And the thing is, is that webcomics, you know, you can take this at whatever it's worth, but webcomics is and was a revolution of sorts where it really showed people like you don't have, you can do your work and you don't have to shop it out to DC, to Marvel, to the big houses. You don't, you don't have to sit around and wait to be published by somebody. You can publish this yourself. You can make it happen yourself. You can really like, this is, this is your thing and you get to keep it your thing. And there's no editors to tell you what to do. And there's no, you know, there's no marketing people saying that you're not marketable enough. And it's just a, personal relationship between you and your fans and so to as it formed really wanted to maintain that we didn't want to be another big publishing house that was just there to exploit the same things that the other publishing houses were doing we wanted just to be kind of uh, almost a liaison you know it's still between you and your fans but we've, we've got the, you know, we've got this for you. And you can... Well You're more of an,
0: you're an agent as opposed to um, like, I mean, we always talk about gatekeepers where a conventional publisher, even a great one like, um, was it Andrews McMeal, um, where people love them. I know a ton of cartoonists who've worked with them happily for years and years, even as, you know, bookstore sales have gone down. It's not that they're evil. It's no, not no. that there's something wrong. They have a huge amount of overhead and they've got this infrastructure that's designed around how um, they have to own enough of it to make a profit. And then they Return some of that to the author. Where I feel like your orientation is more like we're an, you're an agent. You're like we're an agency of the author. So we're doing something on the top, and they should be getting the majority of it back. We're you know we're handling costs. We're handling this. We take our piece, but we're we're acting for these people. We're not owning what they do.
1: Yeah, they we two big things that we feel very strongly about is that the artist always makes more than we do off of any given. Product, Yeah. And the other thing is that um, the artist always still owns their work. We have a non-exclusivity contract. So you can take, you know, even if we publish a book, you can take that book and you can sell it wherever you want. You can sell it at conventions. You can sell it on Amazon. You can sell it, you know, on more than one website. And if that's what you want to do, if that's how you want to get your book out there, then that's totally fine with us. That there's, oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah. There's never has been, and there's never going to be a thing where we say, like, this is the only place you can buy these items.
0: And that's I, I think that's part of the new economy thing here too for people or creators is that they have to have lots of different places to sell. That if they're going to make a living, they can't just be. No, I shouldn't say that. There are a few people. I mean, there's always the outliers. You can do one thing, and from advertising or sponsorship or direct sales of one kind of thing, they can do well. Or you can have a juggernaut like Penny Arcade, which sure. which is like you know yeah. a Death Star sized operation now with a huge charity and a huge TV, you know, or a web TV. They've right. Got so much that goes on. They've they've become this vast thing, but they're um one outfit like this and then when you go down to the level of where a lot of people are actually making some or all of their living, those folks, from what I know, they do commissions, they sometimes do illustration, they do their own work, they go to conventions. Um, you know, There's this whole range of things they have to do and if you had – if your model had been where your exclusive outlet, then those folks either wouldn't have signed with you it seems like or they wouldn't have been able to go from maybe a part-time to a full-time living doing the webcomic.
1: Oh, absolutely. You can't just have a tunnel that that goes directly from the creator to the store like it can't just be that one you know one back and forth like there has you have to branch out you know a lot of people spend most of their year doing conventions just to get their their stuff out there you know so they're they're selling it anywhere from you know 6 to 15 different shows around the country we do wholesale We get stuff out to small comic book shops where, you know, we're trying to work on uh, wider distribution where, you know, that that kind of thing. So we really want people to see we want to put the stuff out there and we want people who wouldn't normally be coming in through the web comics channels to see the stuff and to like to not only see the merchandise but to kind of click back through and see where the merchandise came from. Like we're really hoping that Topotico works as some sort of a hub so that maybe you, you maybe you read dinosaur comics and then you click through and you want to buy a stuffed dinosaur and then you look at the sidebar and you're like, well, I've never even heard of half of these comics. And then you click through and you can click right back out through the store to those comics that you've never heard of and maybe start reading those.
0: Oh, that's great. That's terrific because that's the, you don't have a, there's not a Topodico, um brand in the sense that I don't, Topotico is a place I go to to get stuff from these artists. But it's not, Tapodico isn't the Tapodico line of blah blah no, 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 or no, Tapodico no. puppets. or it's And that's the thing that's missing. Same thing like Kickstarter doesn't have a, Kickstarter is a place, but everything there is a project. There's no Kickstarter thing you're putting money into right. that's for Kickstarter.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: I, I love that. I also, you know, I think people when they visit topotico.com, T-O-P-A-T-O-C-O <laughs> dot com, it'll be in the show notes, the links, uh, they'll find that I think uh, you know, you don't have every web comics artist. Obviously, I mean, some are doing their own work to fulfill. Some work with some other companies that are not that many, but there's a few like what you do, and um, and some don't sell anything. Obviously, but when you go to the site, you see these, you know, sites, things that people know extremely well. Questionable content, Jeff Shock, you know, for instance, or David Malki with Wondermark. These are not um, unfamiliar um, web comics. Dinosaur Comics, for instance. Um, I also notice you've got Tom Tomorrow, who uh, he's a Twitter buddy of mine, and I want to say. I don't, I don't, uh, he doesn't owe his place on your site to me, but I have been chipping away at him for I think three years and last year when he finally said oh I'm going to have a plushy sparky and I'm going to be working with these guys I'm like yes I've been saying whispering is back to own just saying because I think there's this perception there's a split between uh, he's an editorial cartoonist who does you know stuff that, that looks funnier than it is in the sense that <laughs> it makes you think but it's in that style and um, Matt Bohr is an old uh, buddy of mine too editorial cartoonist mm. who just did a Kickstarter last year I've, I've gotten into that community a, a bit mostly through Twitter and there's this resistance where they don't see themselves in opposition to webcomics, but they don't feel like they can take advantage of the same thing, the audience, the dedication, the plush dolls. But you seem to have cracked that open. I mean, with Tom Tomorrow, uh, Dan Perkins is one of the biggest, I'd say, brands in this sort of alternative editorial cartooning world. But you figured out um, – how to break into that what did you take as an approach to find his audience or to bring his audience in to what you're doing here
1: he brought it to us mm. yeah he brought it to us we we got an email from him and we're just starstruck we were so excited because we were we've been big fans of his forever i mean i've been reading his his comic probably since high school maybe i mean it's yeah, been me too, it, yeah. you know it's been in all weeklies forever so I you know whenever Jeffrey turned to me and said I just got an email from Tom tomorrow I was like you've got to be kidding me like do whatever <laughs> you can just because we're such you know and that's the thing is that Tapatalko is curated it's really we really work with people that we really stand behind the product that they make we stand behind their art whether it be a comic and we're not we're not just I know people think of us mostly as a web comics. Company, which is completely valid because we are mostly web comics, but we have we've been really making an effort to bring in people from other genres too. I mean, we have uh, Gaslamp Games, which is an indie game studio. We have Jonathan Colton, who's you know everybody knows who Jonathan Colton is, I think probably, but he's a he's a musician, and we have Brandon Bird is a painter. And you know, and i I know I'm missing somebody well, you've but. got and
0: you've got like ma- maximum fun yeah, that's and I'm true. Seeing, yeah. looking at meta yeah. metafilter things that sort of fall outside of that category but are part of the same world
1: right, exactly the Venn diagram of people who like all of these things it's really like I'm a, I'm a big max fun supporter and i go to max fun con every year and you know i've really become kind of i i'd like to think i become part of their community and so that's been amazing to really find out that all of these people that is one place i, I went to max fun con and i didn't have to explain what i did for a living <laughs> it was the weirdest. You were, a, you were a
0: star, weren't you? they were like Tapotico? <laughs> no,
1: no, it wasn't like that. But I. Aww. But it was great because there was recognition instead of like, huh, <laughs> you know, like a good luck with that cute little thing that you're doing. But
0: everybody there, even if they didn't know the company name, they've bought something from you. Sure, at Max sure. Funcon, you got. It, I would believe. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, that was. I well, Max Funcon. They, we don't sell anything, but um, but yeah, they. No, oh, but the I mean, there, at some yeah. point,
0: all the. All the attendees are fit i mean the, the Venn diagram of like people who go to that conference and people who like web comics and people would buy you know, a t shirt or some merchandise or a book yeah. there 's a perfect overlap, yeah, there.
1: exactly to the point where I would start no- recognizing names when I was going through packing slips oh oh <laughs> like God. it was like oh okay this this is the, exactly like those worlds definitely overlap, and colton 's world. Overlaps with those two worlds, and you know, and Metafilter is part of it. Matt Howey actually was at the reason that, that we uh, started working with Metafilter was because I was talking to Matt Howey at Max Fun Con. We were just chatting it to each other in line for lunch, and I was like, "Oh, so what do you do?" And he's like, "Oh, I have this website. It's called Metafilter," and I'm like, mm, "Yeah, I might have heard of that." Yes. So, so yeah, so it's really cool because then the people who read webcomics and listen to podcasts also play video games. And so, you know, to have an indie game studio with us just made sense. And so we're trying to click pieces in, piece people who make sense, you know, people who are going to appeal to the – Same audience that built Topodico, the same audience that likes webcomics and likes smart, really great, really well done art whatever the
0: form is and before i think before there was a central place to find stuff uh it would have been everyone would have had to reinvent the wheel right before tabatico was doing this and working with all these artists every artist had to figure it out and you know and some people come from a graphic design background like uh, like you know dan perkins says, tom tomorrow he can print his own books like he knows he's done that before he's worked and everything um but but he doesn't have he doesn't want to you know he doesn't want to have to do that and i think um, newer artists who might have started out on the internet alone, they don't necessarily have that printing background. They don't know how right. to get, you know, necessarily, you know how to use InDesign and do all the stuff you have to do or want to. And it feels like, again, I think I want to say you guys sparked some of this because you made the expectation that something that you could read online in episodic form or irregular form, that was great online. If somebody wanted a book form of that, that was now suddenly possible and it would be high quality. It wouldn't be uh, I don't know. I mean, there, there are ways that I've gotten some stuff back in the early 2000s when it was newer. There were web comics that I liked, and I'd get, you know, these sort of strange plastic spiral edge bound <laughs> <Yeah>. things because <laughs> yeah.
1: that's all they could right. afford yeah, they could have done to it make Kinko's. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it was great. I didn't mind having that. I was like, this is cool because I can have this comic. But then we seem to evolve into people are expecting the same thing now from web comics that the, the professionality and polish that they'd accept, expect from any other product, you know, both the books and the other merchandise, it has to be the same thing as they'd buy as sort of a Produced good.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we really, we go out of our way to really make beautiful books. And we hope that that's what people think that we do. And, you know, and we've just started dipping our toe into things like hardcovers and like, specialized printing and things like that, because it's the way the industry has grown. It used to be standard that you got your book done at Kinko's, and they had the spiral bound. And remember that, did you ever see the old Akewood cookbooks? or the, the, oh, the original yeah. Akewood books, which were great. I mean, it was so cool that you could buy a thing from Akewood. And they were just, yeah, like he probably just got them done at the local copy shop and then we mailed them out himself. Um, but now we actually work with real designers, and, you know, we get them printed from real printing houses. And so, but that's what's expected, because now that that standard has been set, you can't go backwards. You can't just make a, you know, and I'm, when I say you, I mean like anybody in the webcomics, Genre, like when, you know, you you can, but then people who are really into the world kind of look at it and they're like, well you know but this book is like you know they did a book and this is really nice and then they did a book and you know, it was just like this stapled thing and like you know yeah, so people are seeking us out yeah
0: right and i mean you're yeah you're in distri- distribution channels with regular bookstores they don't want to take a book that doesn't look like a book they want right. a book that's very booky and that people like and doesn't get returned and right. and you know i think that premium thing is interesting too which is um this will help us segue into the into the kickstarter discussion too and crowdfunding is uh when um when tom tomorrow i i forget how Long it was in the process of working with you guys. He announced on Twitter, "Hey, we're gonna have this limited edition uh a book. You can buy. It's gonna have all these annotations. I'm gonna annotate all the comics. It'll be the special thing. But you got it. there's a limited edition." I immediately, of course, I'm like, "I want it." Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an old time fan. I love the fact that he's working with you guys. So it's like a combination of supporting him and wanting it. And I've you know I've read the book three times since I got it. And and then he has this whole hilarious story about UPS showing up and leaving the boxes. You know, the problems of having your own office in your home and this thing, and then signing. And he was, but I could follow him on Twitter at He's doing this. He was so overjoyed to have this connection with people. Have you guys handling the heavy lifting? But he could actually connect. He was able to, you know, essentially hand sell to his best fans, this special thing to sign it by hand. And then to know that all these people got something that otherwise in a previous stage of our economy would have been unaffordable. And now he's got these, you know, his 500 true fans or 1000 true fans who did who bought that edition are even more closely bound to his future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really cool is that, you know, people like Dan who, you know, he's really old school. In comparison, I mean, the old school being older than 10 years because... <laughs> that's
0: right. Before is, that's 2003. Right.
1: Because this, this whole industry is just like, it's the tiny baby of, of, of industries. But I'm sure that the way that he used to interact with his fans, if at all, was actually getting a written letter in the mail or like, you know, you get an email but it's not really the same. And like, now with Twitter and with and with the way that we can all interact one-on-one on on a really immediate personal level, you know, it's it's really cool to see people react to things so quickly. You know, it's really cool when, when a personalization goes up for whatever artist and just to see the reaction to it on social media and to see the reaction to it just in sales. Just be like, oh, look, like, 2,000 people love this and they love it so much that they pay the extra $10 to have it signed. Like, that's really cool.
0: It makes the artists so feel – I mean I feel like a lot of the cartoonists that I've talked to – I'm a big cartoon – as you can tell, I'm a big okay. cartooning fan. So Twitter has been fun because I've gotten to become friends with some of these folks or, you know, or even just acquaintance with, with others and – or just to follow what they're up to and um, it's a lonely job. I wrote this series of articles for – when I was uh, freelancing for the New York Times around the late 90s, early 2000s about the changes that the internet was bringing to cartooning and that was one of the big things then before they could sell stuff directly even really was – We're not alone. We're getting all this email from people. And now it's like, okay, not only are we getting email, not only are we on Twitter, not only do we have social, all this other social networking, but the people who love us the most, they don't have to find us in a newspaper or in a bookstore or in a comic book. They can come to us directly, come to our site. And if they want something I make, I can sell it to them and they know they're supporting me absolutely directly. It's not this arm's length like we have no idea who these people are who are making the money. It's The cartoonist is the end beneficiary of it too.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's really made it really personal. And, you know, for better or for worse, um, it's made it really personal. But it's, I don't know, I, I, I think it's amazing. And I know, I know a lot of people who work in traditional publishing. And they love Twitter, too. They love that sort of thing, too, because they, you know, they've got they write a book, and it comes out a year later. But in the meantime, you can interact with your fans. And instead of just feeling like you're throwing your work into the void, you know, instead the, there's voices coming out of it and like telling you that either you're great or you suck, but you know, at least it's feedback.
0: Let's pause to thank a sponsor. An event apart, a design conference developed and run by Jeffrey Zeldman and Eric Meyer is the preeminent event for people who make websites. The conference is jam packed with information that you can put directly to use. Your head will be crammed full of new ideas after every session. I know mine was after I attended in Seattle. Jeffrey and Eric pulled together 12 of the leading minds in web design, plus their own expertise for two days of nonstop inspiration and enlightenment. They have an optional add on workshop day on multi-device web design. Upcoming events are in San Diego, Boston, Washington, DC, Chicago, Austin, and San Francisco. If you care about code as well as content, usability, as well as design, an event apart is a conference you've been waiting for. Go to aneventapart.com slash newdisruptors. That's aneventapart.com slash newdisruptors. And now back to the podcast. Well, it's also this thing. If you can amass a reasonable number of followers on Twitter and Facebook and, and you know, through other means that you've got an audience who, when you say this is on sale, they suddenly buy mm-hmm. it. You know, whatever percentage is going to buy it, they do it at once. I know it's pushed some authors, I think, have gotten into bestseller lists, which then pushes more sales because they're in people's mind. Right. Because a fraction of – you know the, the, some fraction of their, of their fan base went and did something all at once. The book's on sale and like Amazon gets 5,000 orders in five minutes and it, things shoots up to number 10 and people are like, what is this? And they find it because it's number 10 and it, and it has a feedback process. So it seems like there's a beneficial explosion effect there too.
1: Well, yeah. I mean look what they did with Machine of Death. You know, when they released the first Machine of Death book, they were like, "Okay, wouldn't it be funny? Great. Like, we'd be great. But it wasn't like they weren't like, ha ha. (laughs) But they honestly were like, I don't know. Let's see if we can pull this off, you know. But they were like, they did. They They got it to number one, didn't they? They got it to number one. so crazy. They got it to number one on the same day that Glenn Beck's book came out.
0: That was great. And it was yeah, because that's right. You don't need Amazon's interesting because it's about acceleration. Right. So if you can, I mean, their thing is It's like some, the formula has never been disclosed. It's like Coca Cola, <laughs> yeah. but the, but it's acceleration. If you can sell a lot of books really fast in short periods of time, you can overwhelm books that have sold, you know, a million copies over, over two years. Right. There, you know, there's a related issue I wanted to ask you about. I got into this a bit with uh, Craig Mott on a recent podcast who, who writes a lot about publishing and has been publishing himself is that. I wonder how much, if you can tell me, that the cost of things that used to be expensive in the analog world, like it used to be very expensive to print a thousand copies of a book that were of high quality. You'd have to go to five thousand or ten thousand to make it economically worthwhile. Oh, same thing like manufacturing, like the plushy dolls, making T-shirts, and the way in which um, the, the sort of the quality of the T-shirt, how long it would last. How much have analog? changes uh, in technology affected your ability to fulfill these things in a profitable way
1: I feel like, I feel like it really has I mean not as much with uh, t-shirts because we, uh, we use a screen printer mm-hmm. so he's very hands on like literally hands on the machine <laughs> like, I mean he has giant machines that do it for him but it's not a digital print or an analog print but, um, but yeah as far as printing books and the plushes and things like that I don't know if we'd be able to have afforded this Ten years ago, mm-hmm. like I just, I just think it's, it's at a, a point where we can be like, okay, like you know, five thousand, co- we can get five thousand copies of your book and still sell it at a reasonable price, and we both make money off of it. Like I just, I think that would have been unheard of in two thousand and three. But I'm not really, I'm not entirely sure since I kind of came into the game a little bit later than that, so I don't really have a huge basis of comparison. But I know that five years ago was you know we were just starting to kind of dip our toe into into being able to do it so
0: I know that there's little changes where you, you pull out uh, more of the analog stages. I come from a printing background, and I was uh, studying graphic design. Listeners of the show are going to start laughing, because every episode I have to mention this. <laughs> studying graphic design in the late 1980s. So I worked in a print shop, and I um, and had a lot of stuff printed. And it's been amazing to me to watch every successive stage. You know, first we had paper stuff that was photographed. Then you had direct-to-film. Then you have direct-to-plate. And then I think there's even imaging on – I mean, there's not technology where it's imaging on plate for unique prints. That is astonishing, too. But every step – Makes it easier to have smaller and smaller runs because the make ready and overhead are so much lower. The fact that you can deliver a PDF file that's sort of your proof at the same time takes out, you know, thousands of dollars and and many, many FedEx trips. Um, And I know that disappeared years ago. But it is interesting because I think people overlook the analog part of it that – Part of your business is there's a huge audience and you can reach people. You can work with people of huge audiences who then come to you. And then part of it is that the analog side has made it affordable. How do you get your plushies made? I'm always curious about some kind of manufacturer I you know nothing about.
1: Oh, uh, we actually use a company that we really like uh, called Soft Stuff. And mm-hmm. they're out of Canada. And the plushies get made in China. Um, unfortunately, we can't find anything you know closer. But yeah, it's, it's actually so simple to use them. They're amazing. They're like, yeah, you send them a drawing, and then they send you a plush. <laughs> and they're like, does this look like the drawing? It's pretty much – well, at first they send you a photo, and they're like, does this look like the drawing? And then you say either yes or no, and they send you a plush. And then they're like, does that, does that look like the drawing? And you're like, this is fantastic. And they're like, all right, see you in three months. <laughs> and then they send you a whole palette full of stuff. It's the, it's the easiest thing. Like I had no it's idea so how funny. simple it would be. But yeah, it's just like I, when we have our clients do them, like we're just like, just send them a 360 turnaround and they just, you know, sketch out what they want and they give them the, the you know CMYK colors and then it's done. Oh, that's
0: so funny! That's yeah. it's right. That's it's the next will be three D printed in your office. Yeah, that's
1: seriously. Three D
0: three D plushies. Uh, well, so this this is actually probably a good transition into the crowdfunding part of things because so your business so far it was it started as and what you spent years doing was kind of the conventional thing is you know you've said all right there's an artist they've got a uh, they've done a thousand cartoons we're going to produce a book with them they you know sort of meet our curatorial aspects we think they fit into the artists we have now we're going to make the book we're going to print it we're bearing all the upfront costs we've got a warehouse somewhere with it then we sell them and over time we make this back at some point you turn between uh, the expense you put into it into actually making a profit in every book that's sold from that point forward. right standard business So crowdfunding suddenly explodes, mm-hmm. right? Starting 2009, 2010, it starts to grow in power. Now it's this incredible multi-hundred million dollar force. And I could, you know, you could tell from the beginning, this was a place web comics artists and other artists went to because it was a way, again, they could gather their superfans together who would help them bring something into existence. But then you have the same problem. Fulfillment is so difficult. Everyone has to invent the wheel again. You have this neat new idea, make that thing, that you're just in the throes of beta testing with, with some early folks. How is make that thing going to work? Where does that fit into this ecosystem?
1: Well, I think that it fits perfectly into the ecosystem because it's basically doing what Tapato did for, for webcomics, for independent artists. It's doing that for crowdfunders. Um, which are usually the same people, independent artists and crowd funders, again, with a Venn diagram, huge overlap. So what it's doing is it's saying, look, you've got the creative side down. You've got the thing that you want to make and you've got the know-how and you want to raise funds for it. And you want to do this as a relationship between you and your, and your readers or you and your, your fan base or what have you. But, you don't want to ship out all of the components, or you can't, or you live in a third floor walk up in Brooklyn, and you can't <laughs> fit four pallets of books in your house. And what we saw, what was happening is as we were watching the crowdfunding thing explode, and all of these people that we know turning to crowdfunding as basically a sophisticated pre-order system, and which is funny because it's actually coming around again because 10 years ago or whatever... When a comicer wanted to make a book, they, that's how they did it. When you wanted to sell a T-shirt, you ran a pre-sale so that you knew a pre-order, so that you knew how many to print. And so that's exactly what's happening with Kickstarter, is now it's sort of like, well, I kind of want to do this. You know, With some people, they're vanity projects. You know, Like, oh, I want to do an omnibus, but only my hardcore fans are really going to want it. This isn't really something that I can market out. I wonder how many I need let's try to figure this out and that's and that's why they're doing kickstarters and such for them but then it's the same thing It's what we're doing is we're testing this with people who are already our clients not only because we already have a relationship with them but because because they don't want to do their own t-shirts or they can't do their own t-shirts and books and things we're already handling their stuff for them so we're just handling their stuff for them in a whole different realm
0: i don't know if that's word i'm looking for but- well, it's you're you're backing up into the whole. You're helping them plan too, though, isn't that one of the key things? Is is I know that budgeting for uh, and figuring out the levels for a Kickstarter campaign or Indiegogo campaign can be sort of. Maddening, and you'll see some like Order of the Stick, which I've talked about a number of times in the podcast. That sort of broke through the wall with that million dollar plus uh, crowdfunding. They had like seventy three different things, yeah. and and but also what was weird is they actually had significant amounts of money come in at each of those crazy numbers of levels. I know that since then people have have looked at that. I think as a lesson, both hey these guys did really well, but also wow did they have to fulfill so many different things. So. Um, I've seen that again with some other artists. Will come in and they'll say we've got five things. You know, we're going to this, yep. this, 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 this. Others come in with fifty. You're helping to plan at that stage too, so people have a like both a budget and a realistic set of what they're offering.
1: Yeah, we're actually doing a full package, and uh, what we're doing is you come to us with the idea, and then we help you execute that idea from the genesis of it all the way through to fulfilling your kickstarter rewards and then beyond that because we'll also have a a subsection of topotico called made that thing and it's going to be a store within the topotico store just like you would click on one of the creators you would click on this store and it would have all of our successful projects side by side so if you want to you know you you want to make a game say and so, like, you know, let's use, like, the Machine of Death card game as an example. They they make this game. We help them produce it. We ship all their rewards for them. And then they still have, you know, that, that Kickstarter was so successful that they've still got 5,000 more games. Right. You know, and what's going to happen? Either Dave Malkey can keep it in the living room of his L.A. apartment and, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and and he and his wife can sit on it to watch TV. Or... We can sell them and he'll have a store all set up and ready to go.
0: Are you concerned about – or have you seen any – even in these early stages, any backlash from people about that sort of um, what is crowdfunding about problem? Like I know that already with some people as it's moved into more advanced stages – You'll get people who don't back but will carp at a project and they'll say, well, this is no longer about the thing I thought it was, which was making something happen. It's more like, like it is more like a pre sale. Or now the creator is so much further removed, even though this is their thing. They still own it. I mean, they have the copyright. You're still facilitating. But the feedback is you'll see on Twitter, you'll see on websites, yeah, the creator isn't as involved because other people are helping. Are you seeing any blowback from that? Are you concerned? Is there a way to manage how, how the creators market this so that it's understood what your role is in, in this kind of thing?
1: We haven't had any of that directly. I have seen that happen and frankly I think it's ridiculous. I, I really do mm-hmm. because it just it's so it's such an entitled complaint. You know, it's such a like, like, this is somebody that they're not your friend, and they don't owe you a personal relationship. And so for people to complain that they've they've got someone helping them to produce a thing that is ultimately for the people that are complaining about it. Like they're not making the thing for themselves. You know, they're not making an omnibus so that they can have 5000 copies of an omnibus and just be like, I've done it you know like they're doing it it's like
0: the steve martin line it's like oh this is a what is it oh this is a profit thing you know it's <laughs> right. wait there's money but I, some people seem to object and i which i you know you know you know which side i'm on this but some people seem to object that a Kickstarter shouldn't be used for helping someone to pay for their time. That like the artist, you know, like Keith Knight uh, raised over over forty thousand uh, dollars over a year ago, maybe it's almost two years ago now. For I was a teenage Michael Jackson impersonator, mm-hmm. and he was really clear at the outset. He's like, I can't afford to take the time to do this book. So his Kickstarter was both like, I will have the time to devote to this from the rest of my work, and this will pay for the cost. Of fulfilling all the rewards, and then I will have a book I can also sell to other people. And he and he funded, but he was very upfront. And I think he sometimes had to answer that question: Well, why should I pay you for your time? Like, why should crowdfunding pay for your time? Like, but that's that's what you're that's, paying that's for.
1: That's the point, and that that comes from that same culture of of people who, because it's on the internet, it should be free. And I again, like, I, I guess that. We'll just take, if we do get these complaints, we'll just, you know, take them one at a time and basically tell them the same thing. It's that people's time is worth money, especially if they're making something that is essentially, I mean, you know, web comics are 99% a creative endeavor and 1% a business sometimes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like you, you put it out there because it's your art. But then if you can make a living off of your art, then that's amazing. That's an incredible thing. And the whole webcomics model is that you give it away for free. They're giving away their time. They're giving away their product. And then they're like, well, if you like this, there are ways that you can support me so that I can have more time to make this product. And it's a that's their give and take. But for people to complain, you know, these are, I mean, these are the same I I always feel like they're always the same people, and not not to make a rash generalization, but I always feel like it's the same people who bitch when an app goes subscription-based. Yeah, yeah. You you know, it's just like, oh, but I've been using it for free, and now it's $2 a month. It's like, but, you know, and I can't live without it. Well, then pay the $2 a month. (laughs) Like, you know, like, if you can't live without it, if it's really making your life that much better, like, just pay for it. I don't really understand the like, but I've been getting it for free. Why can't I continue to get it for free? And why do you need to work anyway? <laughs> like,
0: well, it's funny. The webcomics thing too is that most webcomics are free. There's yeah. very few that are subscription-based. Or it's voluntary or what have ones you. ones
1: don't they, – they don't have the same reach. They,
0: they can't get that you can't uptake. Get yeah, that uptake.
1: You can get You just can't. They yeah. don't – subscription-based, if you, they're behind a subscription wall. A lot of webcomic promotion is word of mouth. You know, it's a lot of people being like, haha, this is so funny, and sending their friends the links. Or like passing it around on Twitter, or passing it around on Facebook, or reblogging it on Tumblr. And so when comics are behind a paywall, you can't do that. And so you're basically locked into your little box of preset fans. And so that's why it, it just, it doesn't work as a model. And, um... And if it did work as a model, Scott McCloud would have figured it out 15 years ago. (laughs) And he'll tell you that, too. Yeah. And so, but yeah, he's, you know, and so that's how that economy built up. The economy is that the comic is free and the creator's time is essentially free. And you can help them still have that amount of time and not have to, like, work a day job or not have to, you know, focus on freelance or other things that they don't want to be doing. So they're compensated for the time that they make. Making the thing that they want to do and that you like, and so Kickstarter is kind of the same thing.
0: That's the patronage model. I mean, that's you know, it's been called micro patronage, the the rewards-based crowdfunding model to be so specific because there's now going to be a bunch more crowdfunding models coming out that involve investment and so forth. But this particular model, it's it's like. You are a patron of the old school. You're a Medici. You're, you know, you're one ten thousandth of a Medici or one hundredth of a Medici, but you still get to say, aha, through my largesse, I get to support this artist I like and I am allowing them to create the art for me now. And then there's a sense of ownership, maybe too much sometimes, but, but generally appropriate where people Get to participate. And I think, I mean, that's the positive side. The people who don't participate, they can carp about it. But, hey, you know, when someone, you know, like when Penny Arcade did their Kickstarter campaign, I was dubious, I have to say. And a lot of people were like, does this fit the model? Because they're trying to remove ads from their site. But I think ultimately I came around where I thought, no, they're offering uh, good rewards. Like the rewards they're offering are unique and interesting and they, they appeal to people like Penny Arcade Everyone gets a benefit because everyone going to Penny Arcade now doesn't have to see ads and their stretch goals moved them beyond just the ad thing into other realms in which more things were produced that people like Penny Arcade likes. Right. So it did see, but, but originally it was like, oh, they already have all the money in the world. Why would they do this? They're like, no, yeah, we have all the money in the world. They didn't say that, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we have substantial revenue, but we'd love it if we could not have to do this ad thing because that would make the experience better. But you get to choose as somebody who likes Penny Arcade. The people who don't like it don't have to contribute. The people who do can contribute and benefit, you know, a hundred times the number of people who contribute get the benefit when they come to the site.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what people need to realize, too, is that the model, quote unquote, is not set in stone. The model has been changing. You know, the webcomics model as it exists now is not the same as it was 10 years ago, it's not the same as it was five years ago. I've been in this industry as it is. I keep using the word industry, and I keep thinking that's the dumbest thing to say. But, like, but it's, no, it's what big, it is. It's, but it's now big enough. It's now it's, it's industry. an industry. There's, there's money um, in it. But the, the webcast industry, like I've been in it for seven years now, and it's vastly different than when I started.
0: Let's pause to thank one of this week's sponsors, audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. It has over 100,000 titles in its catalog across almost every genre. Listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere, on your iPhone, iPad, Android phone or tablet or BlackBerry or on a desktop computer via iTunes or other software. Audible is offering New Disruptors listeners a free audiobook as part of a 30-day trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors to take advantage of Audible's offer use it to listen to Rin Tin Tin, a book written by my friend Susan Orlean about the most famous dog in the world. Susan narrates the audiobook. That's slash disruptors Let's return to the podcast.
1: And it's, you know, I like to think that we're a piece of it, but it's it's absolutely true. I've watched so much change in a way that like that I can't even Justify with how what it what's it like what it 's like now that against what it was like in two thousand and five it 's just crazy crazy different, and I feel like the same thing applies to Kickstarter and to crowdfunding. The same thing applies because people are manipulating it they're finding new ways to make it work mm-hmm. you know, and you see these little cottage industries we're not the you know we 're not the first ones to pop up and say hey let 's help you do the thing that you want to do you know we're the first ones to do it in this way i think well maybe not the first but i mean but we're we're doing it in this particular way but there are other things there's um there's this company called becker kit that um is a fulfillment house you know they've been doing this for a while already it's because you see the need it's the same reason that topotico got founded is because we saw the need people needed our help and we could we could We were like, we know how to do this. We're already doing this. We know how to do this. Let us help you. And so when we were watching people struggle with their Kickstarter management and fulfillment, we were saying the same thing. I turned to Jeffrey and I said, but this is what we do. We (laughs) know how to, like, this is what I do all day. This is what we do. We do project management and we do production and we do fulfillment. I just want to help these people. Like, you know, it's like my natural instinct.
0: It's just a difference about it was where the, the stage at which the money comes. Right. It's exactly the same thing you do. It's funny because I've, I've been joking about like Jonathan Colton when I interviewed him not, lo- uh, not long ago is saying, you know, you've been doing crowdfunding for a long time. You've just been <laughs> doing it the other way around. Like you make something and you sell, it. but it's, you know, it's like retail sales is just the inverse of crowdfunding and, and crowdfunding. Uh, one of my editors at the economist uh, has a book coming out about social networking that goes back like hundreds of years like in coffee shops. It's a very interesting book. And he pointed me recently to this excerpt he'd found from, the 1600s, that was a crowdfunding proposal. And it reads – the language of the thing is ridiculous. It reads exactly like it has yeah. rewards and levels and what will happen if the thing is funded. And you're like, okay, a new crowdfunding wasn't <laughs> okay. precisely new because pre-sales – but holy cow, it's just the even the form and the thinking about it. But I think there's the spaces in the ecosystem for companies. You are already set up, and I know there are new companies being founded specifically for this. I've interviewed the folks at uh, – outgrow.me mm-hmm. dot dot me, that do the backend thing for, because they were like, you know, the guy who started the site said, I was trying to find how you bought products. Once they'd been fulfilled on Kickstarter, where could yeah. I find a pen type A or something like that? And the answer was it was very hard. You had to go to these sites, and the it, same problem your web comics artists had. Every designer was having to reinvent how to ship things mm-hmm. if it wasn't part of their business, and very few had made things of this scale before. Now you go to Outgrow.me, and you can buy like I think it's a hundred or 150 different things that were uh, you know pro- that were uh, uh, more like industrial design products that were made, and the artist the the you know designer is getting most of that money, and these guys are distributors and fulfillment. But they started that from scratch. scratch you guys existed and just said hey i I love that notion (laughs) we're already doing this every day we just just move the dollar pipe to but this this puts you in more of a i want to say a traditional publisher position too at some level because you're setting everything up with the artist is there are you charging advance fees or do you only charge if the kickstarter Kickstarter completes are you doing something that's more like an advance against the revenue that will come in no
1: the way that we're going to work it actually is that we are going to Run the Kickstarter through us, like it'll be the artist Kickstarter, mm-hmm. but the the money will actually come straight to us, and then we pay them out at the end. So the 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 way that it's going to work is that you know you get a pile of money at the end of a, at the end of a successful campaign, and you get a pile <laughs> of money, and then there's basically a pie. Then you have to you know you have to slice the pie, and it's the majority of the pie is going to go to. The, actually, producing the thing that you raised money for, and then you have to ship it all out, and that's not cheap. And then you have to, you know, and sometimes you have to buy boxes to do that. And da We're going to take the piece that's left, and we're going to to take our fee, and then just cut the artist a check for the rest of it. That's
0: great. I mean, it's an interesting model. So it's it's the same model you have now, but you're absorbing more risk at one level, but not at another, right? Because until the money comes in you just have had to put the time in the planning, but you already know how to plan for books and you'll have done multiple campaigns. So I know you won't have a cookie cutter approach because everyone's different, but you're going to know what works and you'll have, be able to do this over and over again to figure out what works best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the idea anyway, hopefully. There's so few
0: people been able to do more than like two or three campaigns. I know people have advised on campaigns. In fact, one of your, uh, one of your Mm -hmm. artists, uh, Dave Kellett, who's uh, got the movie stripped. I talked to him about that for an economist piece not long ago. It just, Fulfilled its, Or they, the, they do their second Kickstarter campaign. But he's done two, and he's very experienced right. because he's done he's done two, and uh, you know I know some people have done three or four even, but you know no one to date really has done twenty or fifty projects for other people.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's I think that part of that is because the whole thing is so new, you know. And then also the other <laughs> thing too is that some people, once they do one campaign, they just can't. They just can't. Like with the next one of the next projects we have coming up is um, again another one of our clients. His name is Tyson Hess, and he does a comic called Boxer Hockey, and he wanted to do a plush frog. For his like that ties in with his comic. And so we were like, Oh, well, we'll run it as a make that thing project. And and he's like, Great, because I've already done one Kickstarter and I almost went bald from tearing my hair out. I cannot oh, yeah. he was like, I just can't and you know, and he didn't have like a like he had a very successful campaign. It was not anything along the lines of Tomorrow Girl and Machine of Death, which is the two that we just finished, but he was just kind of like, I hated it. I hated every moment of it. Please take this for me. You know, and so that's the kind of approach. And then, you know, and also um, Canadians cannot use Kickstarter. Oh, is that right? It's yeah. only available it's in the only UK in, and America and in, right in the now. US. And I know, you know, and so what I know, I know a bunch of Canadians who have done it, and they always like have their friend helping them do it, or like having their friend helping them set up, or whatever. And so... You know, we can use Kickstarter because we're in the U.S.
0: So you're saying because you're based in the U.S., you can run Kickstarter campaigns from your own account for people who aren't resident here. Right, right. That's a great thing. The, the, you know, I know I know there is a lot of pain with Kickstarter, and I've talked to people as well. I've talked to, I don't know how many, it feels like hundreds now, people have run campaigns, and, and for some of them, they're like, this is, I, I did it, it's great, but this is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It was great, and I raised X dollars, and oh my God, I'm never going to do it again, but But it moved them to a new realm. And others like, no, this went well and I learned a million things and the next one I do is going to be like this. And some of them now have already done that next thing or the next thing. But, yeah, there's that huge difference. Like once – and that's where I'm. I'm curious where you wind up fitting in this ecosystem because you're now a choice. It's like I can do a Kickstarter by myself. I could work with Depodico. I can work, make that thing. I could, you know, work with this other company on the back end. Like once I'm done, I could ship my products, or books, off to this other place that then handles post Kickstarter fulfillment for me. So I don't have the house full of. Pro- you talked to like the Glyph guys in the early days who were like hand melting, you know, their product and have boxes piled everywhere. It's like no, you can. You have other options now, and I think that's where the ecosystem has grown, right, is that you are now going to be another option in the array of things that people who want to use this mechanism can now turn to if they don't want to do everything themselves.
1: It's actually funny that you mentioned the glyph guys because because uh, Josh Newman came to me after their last – after Mobile Frame Zero and said – I can't ship. I can't. I can't ship all of this. And this is before we. This is we had kind of just come up with the idea for make that thing and hadn't even really talked about it in any seriousness mm-hmm. yet. And he lives in my town. He lives where I live. And so he came to me and was just like, "I have all of these books, and I I don't." <laughs> it went way better than I expected. I don't know what Ooh. you know. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And so and asked for our our help. And I was like, well, we don't really do, that's not really what we do. We're not really a fulfillment house. And then, you know, Jeffrey and I were talking about it and I was like, well, why not? Why not? You know, like, why not do this? Like this guy lives here. Like he seems like a good dude. Like this is a great campaign. Like let's, let's do this. And then it sort of like spun from there, you know? And so I think, you know, we're, we're saying to people the way that we, the way that we'll fit in is, Yeah, you have all of these choices. And it's the same way that you have, you can approach any project, you know, is that you can, if you want to write a book, you can either uh, make it an ebook on Amazon, or you can publish it chapter by chapter online, or you can shop it out to one of the traditional publishing houses, or you can do a print on demand. Like, you know, there's always like, um, there's now the way that the world works is that any project that you want to do, there are a million options to help you make that project. And so we just fit in the same way. You know, it just depends on how you like to work. And if you are a creative person who either has no interest in handling it, does not know, or does not know how, or just can't for any reason, or a combination of the three, then that's where we come in. We're for people who have an idea and just want to be like, I have this great idea. And then just ask for help, you know, like, just I have this great idea, help me make this.
0: You solve the problem of success too, though, where if you're, I mean, so in like Jeffrey's case, as you describe, or, you know, the folks who they set out to raise, um, this happened a little bit with Rich Siegel, his campaign went quite a bit over, not Rich Siegel, I'm sorry, with Rich Stevens, yeah. who's friends yes. with BB Edits, Rich Siegel, he went way over. But, you know, if you set out, you say, well, I'm going to fulfill 500 books, and suddenly, Good news. You have to fill 5,000. You're like, I'm not set up for 5,000. You guys, because you're a business, you have warehousing, you have printer arrangements, all these things, you're already set up. So if I'm more successful than I'd hope to be at the minimum, I don't have to, that doesn't ruin my life to get stuff out.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. That's one of your advantages. Yeah, that's where our advantage is.
0: This is great. Well, thanks for telling me about make that thing. Now you're in beta testing now. When uh, do you have a, a date? when you want to launch in the full? Or is it really because you're working You're working with your current clients now who are at the poticos, Is there a point at which you're going to say, we're going to open up for to talk to other people about how we might work with them?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think that that's what basically we're shooting for the end of the summer. Um, we have uh, four solid projects lined up right now, um, two of which are going to launch uh, fairly soon. And then we're going to sort of – take stock at that point while we're in the middle of, you know, kind of in the middle of the summer, take stock of where we're at and how things are going and uh, and get ready to open it up. But we definitely want to be open to the public by fall.
0: That's great. Well, and with the scale of this, that's what's fascinating too, is you folks could be extremely successful and be one of, you know, a hundred companies that specialize in different kinds of things like, uh, you know, providing the tickets or helping, t- I mean, the manufacturing side. I had a conversation just recently with, uh, with uh, Greg Koenig and- and uh, Duncan Davidson, who make the make the um, uh, Luma Labs, make uh, camera oh, yeah. straps. And Greg is this incredible industrial designer. He's worked on a million projects. And I'm like, when are you starting your consultancy? Because you seem to know how to make stuff. And a lot of the people, I mean, in a general way, he knows how to make lots of different kinds of things. He could have a consultancy or a full business. And there could be 50 people or 100 people doing what he's doing. So that's what's neat, too, is you don't have to succeed by capturing the entire Kickstarter market. Right. No, <laughs> you, right. You have, a, And you're curated. You're capturing a per- certain kind that, is, that, is, that is, both with Topotico and with this set, uh, you think is, is valuable, that you like the work that's done there, that you're, you're, there's an affinity with it as well. So you're biting off a piece of this, and you could have a very sizable piece of it, and there's still so much more room in the economy for other people to do the same.
1: Absolutely.
0: I like that. I mean, that's just part of the thing that's neat about, I think, and what I keep coming back to as the theme of this podcast is collaboration and collegiality. I mean, you have competitors in this space, right? There's Breadpig and there's other companies, but I don't get the sense that everyone's like, ah, you know, and yeah. there's not this incredible aggravation, you know, and, and intrigue. It's like, no, we're all trying to make this work for the creators. And however that works, that's great. And some of your folks have gone on and run their own operations. They've gotten to a bigger scale and they decided to do their own thing. Um, I know there's some people who you work with at Topotico who they do some of their fulfillment and you do some of their fulfillment. It's not a, it's not a exclusive or a contest or battle there.
1: No, no, absolutely. There are definitely – there are people who do split stores. Um, the best example of that is probably Andrew Hussey uh, who does the comic uh, Homestuck, um, which is more than a comic. It's a whole movement. Mm. And um, so he, he, he does a split store. His fan base is so huge and so – voracious for anything Homestuck related that he he has two completely not completely separate but he has two separate stores he has What Pumpkin which is his own business that he um, and his crew run And then he has a Topodico store and we publish his books and we do like half of his T-shirts. We do, you know, a bunch of other merchandise and they do a bunch of merchandise because he wants to keep it personal. Mm -hmm. And so he could turn this whole thing over to one big company, you know, and make like a huge, huge thing out of it. But he likes, he likes sort of having the two and, you know, picking and choosing. Like, okay, well, you guys are going to handle this, but we're going to handle this. And, you know, and we're going to work together on things. And, and I really like that. But then, and then there's other people, too, who, like, you know, we do their, their T-shirts, but they do their own books because they like being able to do personalizations on the fly. You know, and it's just like it's little things like that that just makes everything work.
0: I just think it's great that the economy has now gotten big enough that you can have Baroque variations yeah, on it that yeah. it's not like no we have to do this and if we don't do this we can't make money. It's that there's that it, and you know, it always it comes back to money at some level when you're talking about how people make their living. But so much of what I've talked about with people and we're talking about today is how do you facilitate the collection of money to let people make a living, not how do we maximize returns. Right. It's how do we how do we make the best connection between a creators and audience? Because the audience wants that stuff. It's not that they don't want it, you're not forcing it into their into their <laughs> right. hands. They want it. The creator wants to sell it. And it's like, ah, we've removed some of the friction, which then lets the creative person do more work and create more and have a more comfortable life and you know, less ramen and and uh, more takeout noodles perhaps. <laughs> yeah. You know, the live in the high life, I know. <laughs> Um, Holly, thank you for talking about what you do. This is great. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email new disruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.